Ugly Duckling Oboes is dedicated to the development of young oboe players. They provide quality handmade oboe reads, private lessons, and high-quality oboe sales, rentals, and consignments. The oboes that they rent are conservatory mechanism oboes that include the left-hand F key and low B-flat key. All are maintained by oboe-specific technicians. In-person lessons are available as well as virtual lessons for students who live outside the geographic area or have transportation and scheduling challenges. They also offer online college audition coaching for high school juniors and seniors who plan to audition to be music majors. Visit UglyDucklingOboes.com for more details on how you can set up yourself for success and sign up for their newsletter. That's UglyDucklingOboes.com. Chemical City Double Reads is a full-service double read shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Read Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at www.chemicalcityreads.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish. A podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Oh, we're recording. <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> what were we talking about? Oh, I have something to brag about. Do it. <laughs> I love a good brag. Humble brag is out. Brag brag is in. Well, to be fair, I, it does have to be preceded by a bit of a like confession, which is, you know, like we are a small business. We have monetized our podcast. Uh, and yes, we are a small workforce. The business we do is relatively small, <laughs> which has perhaps um, given me license to, in terms of our uh, limited liability federal status, be a little lazy. As in, I just opened one and went, that's good. And we never really took it any further. <laughs> I love how you're just taking on that responsibility, knowing that I won't do it. Well, <laughs> part of our um, success is knowing each of our respective strengths and weaknesses. That's such a sweet and kind burn. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we have some projects, as we've referred to, that we want to do upcoming, which require our stuff to be together. But so uh, that was in Missouri. We've since, I've since moved to Washington. We want to get this stuff together. And so I started researching like, okay, how do I actually have stuff in gear as an LLC? And this week I successfully requested a certificate of good standing from the Secretary of State in Missouri, which I submitted yeah. to the Secretary of State of Washington when submitting our application to become a domicile, which means an LLC that once did one business in another state and now is permitted to do business in another state. Did you just see my eye glaze over? And 
I did it all right. We're getting our stuff in gear and I am so proud of myself because it is overwhelming. I've watched YouTube tutorial after YouTube <laughs> tutorial of like oh finance channels being like, and here's how you complete this paperwork. And I'm like, ah. <laughs> everything looked like it was supposed to. And I did it. And I feel like, you know, in Romeo and Michelle's high school reunion when they're like, do you have some sort of businesswoman special? Can I get, well, we're business women. Yeah. From LA. And you know, some places have like a lunch special for business women. <laughs> Most of our listeners, I don't think are going to understand that reference. Romy and Michelle, uh-huh. go, r- do not walk. Run. <laughs> that is your homework between now and the next episode, listeners. <laughs> I'm so proud of you. That's awesome. Man. In other news, we have new merch. Another reason we should get our finances together because we're going to have to pay taxes on this merch. It's so cute. It is t-shirts and hoodies and mugs and stickers with cartoon versions of our faces on them, a la our logo. Mm -hmm. And if you really want to be bossy, um, some of it has go make reads on it so you can get a sticker so that every time you open your laptop you're bossing someone sitting across from you to make reads or anytime you take a sip of coffee get one of those uh, go make reads t-shirts for like read class day yeah or just any day and then your students come and knock on your office door and you just open it up and there's the message you don't even have to have a lesson <laughs> that's the lesson go make reads so go buy merch. It's on doublereaddish.com. Easy peasy. It's so easy. It's so easy because it's through a third party and they handle all the shipping, all of the everything. So it's like, so it could not be easier. And we really appreciate your support in mm. buying things with our faces on them and our tagline that we made up five years ago <laughs> or whatever it in was. Corey Mackey's basement yeah. we made it up <laughs> so yeah thank you to everyone who already purchased it there are a ton of people who already purchased stuff if you tag us on Facebook or Instagram when you get your merch we will repost on our social media Yes. And in the process of getting our stuff together, I'm discovering we're actually going to have to hire a CPA for the next step in this project we have coming up. So all proceeds of our new merch will go to hiring our CPA to get this project going. It's growing pain. Yes, bigger and better. Well, I'm sure Chris Wilson is very happy that we're going to hire a CPA. Oh my gosh. Yes. So far, our CPA has been Chris Wilson. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Who also went to Internet U for his finance degree. <laughs> Jenna Ingle loves the oboe. She has built her business on providing high-quality, handmade reads, education, and a sympathetic ear to oboists across the country. When you order from Jenna Ingle Reads, you get prompt communication, reads or cane handcrafted to your specifications, and cheerful, friendly customer service. All orders are mailed within one week, sometimes much faster. 
Single orders or monthly read subscriptions are welcome, and she'll work with you to find the combination of response, resistance, stability, and flexibility that is right for you. Janet doesn't just do reads either. Look at JennaIngle.com for a selection of read cases, swabs, and tools, or for readmaking videos, classes, and boot camps. Podcast listeners can use the code DISH for 10% off their first order. That's DISH, all caps, at JennaIngle.com. Hey, oboists. Have you ever found it difficult to sort out when and how to find a new oboe or English horn? Oboe Chicago streamlines the process, providing personal and professional consultation and a large selection of lovely instruments. The process feels comfortable and thorough. Selection includes Effleray of Paris, Howarth of London, Covey Oboes, and Fox products. For a current listing of Oboe Chicago's selection, please visit www.oboechicago.com. For a credit of $100 toward shipping, mention Double Read Dish when you call or email Shauna. We are delighted to welcome to Double Read Dish, Pedro Diaz, solo English horn with the Orchestra of the Metropolitan Opera. Welcome, Pedro. Hello. Thank you so much for having me again. Last time I saw you was in Florida, and that was something, wasn't it? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. That was so much fun. (laughs) (laughs) For those of you who were not there, uh, Pedro did the most epic live show games with us. Yes. It was incredible. What was it? What was it I had to do? I had to transpose. <laughs> uh, what is what is that? It was a Tristan or something. I had to yeah. transpose, and, and then, then I had to play uh, William Tell in one breath. In one breath. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's video. There's video evidence for that somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Could you help our listeners get to know you a little better by telling them how you came to play the oboe? Uh, yes. Um, my parents, uh, my brother and I grew up in Spain. Uh, after I was three years old, my parents moved to Madrid. My dad was a writer, a novelist, and he had just gone back uh, through it. He went to a literary convention in Cuba. Uh, Casa de las Americas was called, and it was for, for writers and poets. And in those days, it was the heyday of the Cold War. So in order to come back from Cuba to another U.S. territory, which was Puerto Rico, he had to go through two cities. And so he had to go Mexico City, Madrid, Spain, and then San Juan, Puerto Rico. Basically, he went around the world just, just to go back home uh, to an island that's about 300 miles away from, <laughs> from Cuba. Um, and so at his time in Madrid, he spent some, some time with his colleagues and he fell in love with the city. And he told my mother, he said, I just want to live here for a few years. I want to write. I want to you know, do my work here. And my mother was a physical therapist. Um, God bless her. She just passed away this year. We lost my mom. I'm so sorry. Thank you. And um, the physical therapists like nurses and uh, other professionals like this, they can work anywhere in the world. They're always needed. So we went to school there and my parents uh, took us to concerts every Sunday to see the orchestra in Madrid, the National Orchestra, with, uh, um, I think it was Frubert de Burgos at the time, the conductor. 
so, so we came back to Puerto Rico when I was 10 and uh, my brother entered a school for the performing arts called the Escuela Libre de Musica, which is a very well-known school. Most students, uh, most musicians that you know uh, with provenance from Puerto Rico actually come from that one school. It's a very popular and very respected music school. It starts in seventh grade. And so my brother took the uh, French horn and I decided to play the oboe. Um, and actually it turns out that it was my grandfather's favorite instruments. We never knew, but we inherited all this. He was, he had passed away long, you know, before that, but we inherited his records, his LPs, and he had a few oboe and horn records. So yeah, I, I wanted to play the oboe. People say, don't play the oboe. My brother said that the keys break and the reeds and it's like, that sounds great. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> Any particular reason you chose the oboe? Did you, you just like the sound of it? Well, we we were familiar because we were we went to concerts. Um, we were familiar with the instruments, and I knew uh, Peter on the Wolf really well. And I had I had trouble deciding what instrument I wanted to play, but then one night I heard a, a beer commercial on TV. Um, a beer uh, commercial. A beer commercial, yes. <laughs> And it had a beautiful oboe solo in it. Uh, it was this German beer and it had a, a landscape of, you know, somewhere in the black forest and it had this beautiful oboe solo. And I thought, wow, it's not making me thirsty, but it's making me thirsty to play the oboe. <laughs> <laughs> when did you decide that you wanted to be a professional musician? I really never decided that. It just, it was a very long and checkered uh, pathway and I just you know I, I just kept playing and try to avoid you know the, the issues that you have when you're growing up in a difficult family situation I just I, I played a youth orchestra I played in school and the great thing about orchestra for kids is that it keeps you away from the streets and it, you make good friends and you, you get to know some decent people and parents so I Eventually, when I was uh, 16 years old, we had Robert Boudreaux, who had this orchestra called the, uh, called the American Wind Symphony. And he had a barge. And most people, uh, most musicians know this group and they know Robert Boudreaux. As it, has a, it was a controversial character. He was quite the businessman and, and a great band leader. But for people like me, he, he changed my life and I will always be indebted to him because he came to Puerto Rico with his orchestra, with his, with his wind ensemble. And he came to my school and he made some auditions. He got some money from sponsors. And um, I, I got to study in Pittsburgh for a year and stay in the, at the Stephen Foster house, which he had bought uh, as a national landmark. Wow. And how did you come to pursue or specialize in the English horn? What led you to emphasize on that instrument? Well, that was another accident. I, you know, when I went to Juilliard and in those days, um, you didn't have a really chance to take lessons. Uh, Tom Stacy was the teacher, but I think you could just measure an English horn and nobody wanted to play the English horn because everybody wants to be the first oboe of the Chicago Symphony or the New York Philharmonic when they go to school. Just like every violinist wants to be a soloist and every pianist. Uh, that's, you gotta give it your best. 
And so uh, English horror was kind of like punishment or, or just uh, it's a bit like traveling to the moon, you know. It just nobody ever had a read. You have to play the English horror with your oboe read or. <laughs> Did you do that? Yeah, a couple of times. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like orchestra, you know, orchestra reading. I, I try yeah. not to play it as much as I could. I try, I try not to play it. But also we had we had some very nice uh, uh, students who were studying with Mr. Stacy and they were specializing on the English horn. So they needed as much uh, exposure to the to the five or six solos that are out there in the repertoire. Did you ever decide to be an English hornist or is that something you fell into? I fell into it actually well, after I graduated from Juilliard. I, I went to back to Puerto Rico and I happened to buy um, a, a used student English horn for a very suspicious uh, origins <laughs> somewhere in Eastern Europe. What's the serial number scratched on? I, I got a good price for it. I didn't ask any questions and I thought I should have it just uh, because I. I thought maybe I want to learn to play the English horn someday, you know, but I was sure I was just going to get a job playing the oboe. And so uh, my teacher, Elaine Dubas, at the time, uh, she um, she sent me, I remember getting a beeper. Remember those, you know, you were not yeah. born. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Before cell phones, people yeah, had beepers. Me. Yeah. Yeah. And so <laughs> I, I had no money. My first job was playing in the in the band, in the state band. And we played concerts in local squares in every town. And it was $500 a month. And I had to compete with about 23 saxophones and 16 clarinets. <laughs> so I developed a big tone. <laughs> <laughs> and so it, it, was, it was great because I got to know all the towns in Puerto Rico, all the beautiful towns. And that was also before uh, GPS. So I would just ask, you know, where's the town square? You know, you go to Lares, you go to Arjuntas. Okay, all I, all I have to do is just get to the town square and that's where the concerts were usually. So uh, I, I got this English horn and then I, I, I bought a beeper thinking, okay, someday someone is going to call me for some gig. And in effect, I got a beep from, from Elaine Dubas and she said, oh, Pedro, you know, there's a job in South Africa for, uh, there's two jobs available. And so I wrote my friend, uh, Kelly Newport, and she wrote me, those, those days people actually wrote letters. And they asked me to apply and they gave me a list and I made a cassette. Uh, you don't know what a cassette is, I'm sure. Yeah, we do, we do, yeah, we're, we're there. We're there with you, we're there with you. We'll uh, explain it to our listeners uh, later. Uh, this is a cassette. <laughs> uh, I'm holding a cassette and I'm holding a pencil as some people will never know the relationship, <laughs> the relationship between a pencil and a cassette. Am I right? <laughs> okay. So anyway, I recorded a cassette and I sent it to the orchestra in Durban, in South Africa. The, it was called the Natal uh, Philharmonic. And they had two positions, one for assistant principal and one for second and English horn. So I applied for, pre I, I play my oboe, you know, I played the heck out of the oboe. I just, I just hadn't got out of school, Julia. I was, you know, I was in good shape. And, and then I thought, yeah, why, why not just play some English horn solos? That'd be kind of fun. So they got my cassette and they wrote me back and they said, well, you know, your oboe playing was really good, 
but your English horn playing was not very good at all. Uh, can you record again? I said, yeah, sure, why not? And so I recorded again on the English horn. And I don't know, I mean, not only did I not know what I was doing, I had a student uh, for Sati, which was a, it was a good instrument, but it was a student instrument. And it had an automatic octave system, you know, all these things that I didn't know. And so I made a recording and I heard from them and they said, well, okay, your robot playing was really good. Your English horn playing is still not good, but we're going to offer you the English horn job. <laughs> they didn't offer me the oboe job. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I guess you can call them an accidental, uh, you know, <laughs> opening into the world of English horn. You should get shirts made that say in quotes, <laughs> Your, your English horn playing is not good. <laughs> like, oh, like I, I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> and so what happened is that uh, uh, a colleague of mine who became a colleague at, at the time, a John Max student, he was already in South Africa playing in Cape Town. And so he auditioned in person. And of course they had to, you know, they had to give it to him because he was there and, mm -hmm. you know, who knows this. Pedro guy was so <laughs> yeah I give him the English horn job well, who cares if he doesn't know how to play it <laughs> uh, and so the day I arrived I actually I they paid for this plane ticket and uh, again I went around the world just to get to Durban I think I took about four planes and I slept <laughs> I slept for like two days straight when I arrived <laughs> and I showed up to rehearsal to play Roman Carnival oh god and that was something I, that conductor had He'll never forget me. Uh, I'll never forget him. It was, <laughs> it was a rough landing. Yeah, very rough landing. And, you know, trying to play that instrument, uh, it proved to be very difficult. I had no money. You, you don't really make a lot of money in this orchestra. So I just plowed ahead and I blessed my colleagues. You know, they're, they're saints. So you were in South Africa. Can you talk to us about kind of what happened from there? Like how long you were in that orchestra and... Um, going from there, would you say you became an English hornist, if we're going to say it that way, doing this job and chose to go down that path or kind of walk us down what happened in your life after that? No, there, there was quite a few more accidents uh, before that. And I, I went back to Puerto Rico and I was, you know, there's nothing, I had nothing to do. I didn't study with the, uh, with the people in the orchestra, so I didn't really have a chance to solve in the orchestra. And so I got a job as a front office personnel in a hotel in the Caribe Hilton, in the Hilton Hotel. Uh, I did some other things. I did some gigs. Eventually, I got that beeper again, and I got another beep from Elaine Dubas. Uh, you know, she takes care of her students. You know, she, she really works hard to, to place her students always somewhere. And this time was in Mexico, in Mexico City, with the fabulous Bob Weiner. Bob Weiner, who teaches now in Miami, um, what an incredible musician he is. And he was playing first oboe in the uh, Mexico City Philharmonic. This was at a really good time. It was, you know, the 90s and the economy was really good. And uh, so I made another cassette and I sent the cassette. This was for second oboe, no English horn. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, uh, I sent the cassette with a bunch of excerpts. He, he was happy. I was happy. I quit my job at the hotel. It's funny thing is that, you know, 
the hotel had an orchestra, a pickup orchestra on the weekends that would come and play traditional Puerto Rican music, but also, you know, overtures like poet and peasant and stuff like that. And sometimes the musicians, people that I grew up with, they would come up to me, they would see me at the front um, counter mm -hmm. wearing a tie and looking all spiffy. And they would come to me and say, Pedro, what do I have to do to get a job like that? <laughs> they actually thought, they actually thought that that was a better job. <laughs> I mean, that's right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so, so I, I quit my job and I went to Mexico and it was being in Mexico was where I've been already two or three times in my life uh, playing. It was a wonderful, wonderful, what, what an incredible nation, incredible people, incredible experiences. Um, and I learned so much from Bob and he fixed my gouging machine. Shh, don't tell anyone because he doesn't <laughs> want people to know, but he is probably one of the best with gouging machines in the world. And I have his phone number. And no, address. he's not going to do it. <laughs> I blew it. I'm going to get a nasty letter from him. He's going to write it on paper so I can frame it. <laughs> He's an incredible, incredible musician and a fantastic uh, repair guy with all those gouging machine things. He used to do it for, you know, he used to do it for a living along with playing the orchestra in Oklahoma. But that orchestra in Oklahoma uh, folded. And so the conductor at the time was uh, Herrera de la Fuente, who was sort of the uh, Toscanini of Mexico. And uh, he, he got to live to be very old. And so he was a conductor in Oklahoma and he brought most of the people to, to Mexico City, uh, the players, the principal players. So you were playing second oboe there, no English horn? No English horn. I didn't own an English horn. But then, uh, oh, wait, no, I did own that English Yeah, horn. I was like, what no, happened I to the facade? <laughs> I, it was in hibernation. And so uh, there was a huge market crash in Mexico the, in the change of uh, presidents. They found out that the older president was lying and he was lying about the, uh, about the peso. So suddenly the peso dropped dramatically and I was poor and everybody was poor and all everybody's credit cards just completely went crazy, the interest. And so I called my first teacher in the United States, uh, Mr. Gorton, James Gorton from the Pittsburgh Symphony. And uh, he was so generous. He was always, he was the best teacher I could have um, when I started. He told me how to make reads and he was very patient with me. I needed, I needed somebody to be patient with me. Uh, I still do. My wife is, uh, you know, she's still, she's still with me. <laughs> and That's so, all uh, we can ask for, honestly. <laughs> yes, yes. I, you don't have to edit that out, I guess. <laughs> so uh, uh, he said, well, you know, uh, send the cassette no no he didn't say that <laughs> <laughs> so uh, i went to to work on an artist diploma at the duquesne university um where i've already been there before and so when i was in pittsburgh i decided to start to play the english horn more and more so i started to study with harold smollier excellent musician also and he went with me uh, i sat with him and we went through every excerpt every excerpt i had lessons with him and he was magnificent um you know i i'm so grateful to him for that i also got to study with felix kraus because pittsburgh is not far uh, from uh, cleveland and i had been studying with john mack on and off 
pretty much since I came to the United States, since I was 17. He knew me. Uh, I also got to study with him at the Kent, Kent State one summer. Uh, and so I learned very quickly the styles. You just have to know the styles. You have to know the tips and tricks. Um, and then uh, when I moved to New York, I got to study with Lou Rosenblatt. So it was then that I sort of knew, you know, a little bit. I'm still learning. Um, I still don't know how to play the English horn, but uh, I was, you know, approximating kind of my idea of what an English horn should be like. So that's when sort of I started to. And so I took some auditions. Can we hear about your experience preparing for and auditioning and winning your position in the Metropolitan Orchestra? Orchestra? I don't know why I can't again. say that today. Metro- say it fast, orchestra? really, three times, really fast. <laughs> Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. <laughs> Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. <laughs> yeah, so. um, Thank you. Yeah, I, actually, you know, I, I, I've auditioned uh, already once. I auditioned twice for the Metropolitan Opera. I auditioned first time when Robert Walters got it. And then I auditioned for Principal Oboe when uh, Eugene Isotop got the job. And both times um, I had problems with confidence and I had to work on my mental toughness. So, but I, I knew what the Met was like. I knew that whole very well because when I was at Julia, we did some, um, some fake auditions. What do you call that? Mock auditions. And I knew what it sounded like. I know the sound that... Yeah. Elaine Dubas likes. Um, so I, I, I tried to prepare by memory and by feel. And I was lucky enough that, again, I was in Mexico playing in the orchestra, Principal Omo in Guadalajara. And I had a lot of time. I had a lot of free time. I wasn't married. Um, I was playing in an orchestra that only had one concert a week and sometimes on Sundays, but it was mostly a concert on Friday and sometimes a concert at noon. And we rehearsed in the morning and the rest of the day I was free. I mean, the rest of the day I was free. And so uh, I actually moved to Guadalajara after going there back and forth as needed. I was offered the job and I moved there in August of 2004. And the audition was gonna be in February, 2005. And so I had nine months to prepare. And so I already uh, had a blueprint of what I wanted to do, what I wanted to prepare. I knew the repertoire sort of because I've auditioned before. And uh, I decided to run the list every day for 25 minutes. Just run the list every day. And then take separate times for practicing and separate times for remaking. But every morning when I got up, I ran the list. No exceptions, no practicing, no stopping. Whatever happened, happens. And that's what I recommend to my students and everyone. I said, run the list every day for a few months. By the time you get to audition, that'll be just like running the list. I want to ask you about confidence and mental toughness. You seem to be fearless. You went to South Africa and you went to Mexico and you went to New York and you went to Pittsburgh and you just went everywhere. And you still mention that you had trouble with mental toughness and confidence in some audition scenarios. And 
Um, I would love to hear more about how you worked on those skills and how you have found an equilibrium yeah. because we can be too confident. Yeah. I would guess in life, <laughs> where do we find that balance between believing in ourselves enough to achieve our goals and not being complete egomaniacs? I think that uh, uh, your life has to have meaning. Uh, your musical life, there has to be meaning. There has to be a reason why you're in it. And you cannot be discouraged by anyone. Because I think in the professional um, field, you can so easily be discouraged. But if we remember to the origins of music, you know, Western music, the church, that was the only place where you could learn music. You could be a choir boy. And, and then, you know, the monarchy, the great elector or the, or the you know, the, the, the kings and queens, their kids could study music with the court musicians. And then, you know, in modern society, for example, in Asia, it's well known that it's incredibly expensive to study music. And so only the people that are doing a little bit better, their kids can study music. Um, and we also know in the United States, for example, in the old days, uh, we've heard quotes of John Delancey saying things like, you know, I try to discourage as many people as I can. Uh, so only the really good ones get through or so people don't waste their lives thinking that they're going to make it. Um, I don't know. There's a lot of controversy, I guess, in that because I believe maybe you guys believe that everyone should study music because it will enrich your lives and it will make you better citizens, whether you end up being a musician or not. And so there has to be meaning. I'll tell you, for example, a story of my friend Dominique Wallenweber in the Berlin Philharmonic, the English horn player, excellent, excellent person, human being. He has been to my house a couple of times, you know, a lot of these English horn player guys come to my house uh, at some point, or I try my reads or whatever. <laughs> they find out they're bad and then they will never come back. Uh, anyway, uh, Dominique um, also never wanted to be an English horn player and he grew up with um, in a musical family and his father was an English horn player in an opera house. Wow. I don't know if it was Frankfurt or Munich. And of course, Dominique wanted to be an incredible oboe player. And he, uh, I think he, he, was, uh, he was a finalist at the ADR competition or one of those competitions. It wasn't until he got the job in Berlin that he started thinking about the English horn. But guess what? He already had it in him. He was sort of destined for this job. He, he knew what an English horn was supposed to sound like because he heard his dad play all the time, even though he didn't you know, want to have anything to do with his dad's English horn playing, it was meant to be. And so there has to be something like that. I mean, in my case, my granddad played, you know, one, loved the oboe and the horn. And, I, and I, I got to know most of my life as a teenager with other musicians, spent time. And that, that can be the rudder. It can be. I mean, many other things can derail you but I would say to people who say teachers are important, a bad teacher can never derail a good student. But I'll tell you what I did is when I was in, when I was in Guadalajara in Mexico and I was playing principal oboe, I came to the realization through a lot of meditation 
that in order to win this job in the Metropolitan Opera, because I had just met who's my wife now, and we decided that if we wanted to be together, I had to come back to New York and I was not going to be a musician. I was going to drop the oboe. But I said, you know, let's try something. I'll take the second oboe audition for Seattle and I'll take the main audition for English horn. If I don't get the English horn audition, I'll quit the oboe. That's it. I'm not going to be 40 years old and not have a, you know, not be able to, to keep a family. I had a lot of problems, a lot of emotional problems when I was freelancing in New York because I, I just didn't feel like I was worthy of having a life with anyone. I couldn't barely, you know, sustain myself as a freelancer. Wow. And, uh, you know, that led to a lot of problems and I wasn't an easy person to be around. And I'm sure with my, you know, my freelance colleagues. Um, but what I decided was that I needed to take a major step into sort of getting to know myself better. So I found an incredible analyst, psychoanalyst in Guadalajara that was recommended by other orchestra musicians, um, friends of mine in Guadalajara. And this guy was a specialist and he was really old school. Like you have to sit in the divan and he sat behind you and he has studied in Germany with descendants of Freud. And so this guy was incredible. I mean, he, he wasn't one of those people who just sat and listened. He constantly attacked me. I would say one thing and he was just like, ah, you're not, you don't know what you're doing. You're... And so he sort of woke up the beast in me. He, he made me so angry. He made me so uh, sort of demonical in my desire to get the job that going into my med audition was like going into the battleground with lots of ammunition. Because I look back into my life thinking all those, you know, 35 or 45 auditions I took, I don't remember, where I would just show up and I would hear people warming up behind the door and thinking, wow, everybody here is better than me. They all sound great. I, what am I doing here? Okay, I'll just go and play. Whatever happens, happens. And then I would play. Sometimes I will mess up. Sometimes I will not mess up. But I would say, I, I'll take the next one, whatever. I'll prepare for the next one. This one didn't go well. So what? There'll be another day. So, you know, I was 39 years old and I didn't, of course, I shouldn't be so ungrateful because I did have jobs. You know, I played in South Africa. I played in Mexico City. I also played in Spain, in La Coruña, in a wonderful orchestra. And so I'm very lucky to have played with great ensembles also in New York as a freelancer. But unfortunately, you know, as students in the United States, they feel like if I don't get a job in one of the A-list orchestras, I'm a failure. You know, I'm never gonna make it. Oh, I didn't make it to the New York Philharmonic. I didn't make it to this and that. Oh, forget it, I'm not good. And that's a myth. You know, you, you just have to find your path. Uh, but uh, I just, I was able to prepare very well. I had a lot of time. I used my students as my, uh, you know, human tape recorders. I would play for them and I would have them talk back to me and tell me what they think. I really became adaptable. Whatever they say to me, I did it, whether I believed it or not, whether I agree with them or not, I just wanted to work on changing, change, change. Oh, one of my colleagues who said, no, this is too slow, play it faster. I said, okay, I'll play it faster. I don't care, I'm not gonna play faster at the audition. And this will help me decide you know, have more conviction on how I wanted my excerpts to go. And uh, 
So little by little, I sort of deconstructed what was happening in my previous auditions. I decided to reassemble everything with a different character. Uh, so I became uh, sort of a soldier. I, I went in there in a very um, prepared position to fight the good fight. And I got, oh, there's all the things, I, I got lucky. There was other factors too. You know, I had a good read. I had an English horn that I borrowed from Henry Schumann, who was a, a dear, dear friend and an incredible musician. And it was a very good instrument. I didn't have good instruments. My instruments were blown out. So I actually borrowed two instruments. The, other, the oboe that I borrowed was from, was from Carlos Coelho, which was an oboe I had been trying for, who was then a student of mine. Yes, yeah, so Carlos sent me an oboe that I was trying out for Xiomara, um, Xiomara Mas, who now plays in the St. Louis Symphony. And she decided not to go for it because it, it was kind of expensive. It was a Royale and she wasn't used to playing a Royale at the time. So before I returned it to him, I was just in New York for the audition. I was living in Mexico. My wife, Lucy, who was not my wife at the time, she bought my plane ticket uh, so I could take the audition. And uh, that was a good investment. I keep telling her that. <laughs> 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 and uh, I said to Carlos, look, Carlos, please let me borrow this instrument for the audition. I will be very nice to it. Um, and, and he said, I ah, know, but you know, I don't want you to crack it because you're going to play so much to prepare for it. And it's like, this was like two days before the audition. I didn't even know this instrument, but I knew it was better than mine. And I said, you know what? I'll make you a deal, Carlos. If I win the audition, I will buy the oboe. And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, everybody says that, you know, like, what are the odds that you're going to buy my oval right now? <laughs> so I remember when I actually made it to the semifinals, I called him and I said, I'm just one step closer to buying your oval. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, yeah, parabéns, good luck. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so uh, a, a lot of good things. A lot of people helped me. A lot of people hurt me to work. A lot of people hurt me. No, a lot of people helped me and hurt me <laughs> in, the right, in the right direction. And they helped me get to where I was. So you have to be grateful to your friends and to not so good friends, to your frenemies for just uh, steering you in the right direction because they did you a favor. And your therapists. Ah, my therapist. It's funny because he was a difficult guy. I mean, he, but he was... He was great. And when I, when I got the job in the Met, there was an article in the local paper in Guadalajara and I just left it by his step door because I think at the time I just got mad at him because he kept changing my appointments, constantly changing the appointments. So we kind of broke up. So then I, <laughs> I left the article on his doorstep as a way of saying thank you. And I left also a bottle, a nice bottle of tequila. Oh, very nice. Well, we are very pro-therapy in the double read dish family. Yeah. <laughs> we are very pro community mm -hmm. and your story really speaks to the fact that we can't do it alone. We need support and we need guidance and we need help and we need love. And sometimes we need a push. And I think that's really, really powerful. Indeed. Um, playing, being a musician and being a successful musician is not about playing the instrument alone. You have to, it's an Olympic event. It's like, you know, being a black belt in judo and making it to the finals of a huge Olympic competition. You have to have that competitive 
um, edge, which I never had. I, I never had that. Um, and so, of course, when I won my audition on the Met, I freaked out. I thought, Jesus, what do I do now? You know, how am I going to do this? <laughs> how am I going to? I have to do this job now. <laughs> how am I going to play the English horn now? <laughs> and so I still feel that way. Wow. Oh, I'm torn between continuing to go in this direction and going in another, but um, I did. I'm super curious to ask you about your experience in helping Fox develop the maple English horn and the instrument that you play on now. I'd love to hear about the experience of kind of conceiving and working on that and your choices in pursuing that. I'm a bassoonist, so maple is like old news, but I get to oboists, it's like a big deal. And that's- Oboists are like, what? Whoa. Maple? Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's a funny story because uh, usually my all my stories are funny. And uh, I, I kind of was always thinking out of the box. Um, I was thinking outside the box as an English horn player because I felt like when I got into my, in my job in the med, it's a different, um, it's a different type of playing. And our conductor at the time, James Levine, he never wanted to hear the English horn or the horns. To him, we were like the third finger of the left hand on the piano. And so he, I love that comparison. Yeah. So he, I had to play so softly, and I was thinking, no, English horn, you gotta have a big sound. Or conductors always want to hear more English horn. What do you mean? What are you saying? And so I had to become a specialist at playing really softly. And so I started having some issues with my Lorraine English horns at the time. Um, I felt like some notes were, the low Ds were a little bit high, the low Es were gurgling. There were some issues, but most English horn players were not that picky because, you know, they play a lot, but they don't, they play the overture and then they go home. Uh, so I was playing four-hour operas. I was playing, you know, 10 hours a day and teaching and cracking my English horns. So I wanted to see if more things could be done because, you know, these, these makers like Loray and Rigota and Marigo, they're constantly being swamped by players. Oh, can you lower this note? Can you, can you raise that note? And if you listen to all of them, you would just go crazy. So uh, talking to Mr. De Gordon, he would say, I don't know, people like my English horns. I don't want to change it too much. And... If I do this or that, uh, people are going to be mad at me and what? I say, okay, okay. Um, and so slowly but surely, he did end up making some changes. But at the time, I went to, um, I, I started to try another brand, which was a Manic brand. And so I, I bought some of the instruments from them. And those, of course, had some advantages, but also had other issues, mainly that were made for, for Europeans, great. Uh, reads. And so I made one trip to Martin Location and I helped Ludwig Frank develop uh, a top joint, uh, sort of a more a French style top joint. So it could be played with, uh, with some long scrape reads. Anyway, I won't get into the details, but I tried to tell both of them uh, if they could make a maple English horn. Now, this stemmed around the idea I had a Ludwig Frank. Oboe, you know, it's a separate brand from Manic, but they're both owned uh, partly by Ludwig Frank, the oboe maker. And I bought a beautiful uh, maple oboe. Uh, you see them around now. A lot of people have them now, but I was, I'm usually a first adopter. And so I bought this beautiful oboe. It was maple. It was beautiful. It was like a toy. It was gold keys and, and you know, 
brown maple. And the, but the problem with that instrument is that I would play for 10 minutes and it would start going out of tune. Uh, the, the, the wood was too porous. Uh, I had done some work on it and maybe that affected the ceiling, some of the tone holes. And uh, it was just, it was constantly changing with the weather. I just start blowing hot air on it and it, the tuning would change. And so I like the idea though of having not only a lighter instrument, you know, if you have to play Turandot, you have to play Tristan, you have to play a Valkyrie on an English horn. I don't like wearing attachments. I don't like, I feel like they, they restrict me. And so I, I suggested to, to them, I also suggested to Paul Laubin to make uh, a maple English horn, not only because it would be lighter, but also because I feel like we have to teach the new generations to start playing instruments that are made out of different woods that are renewable. Because I hear that uh, the Asian market is overpopulating the countries like Mozambique and other countries in Africa that produce Grenadilla wood. I may be wrong, but I hear that uh, a lot of trees are being cut down before they should be. I think these trees have to be like 60 years old before they get cut, chopped down. And a lot of companies are making student instruments, you know, wasting all this wood. I mean, not that student instruments are not. <laughs> no, yeah. no, but it's a really valid point. Yeah, so I feel like we could make student instruments or even professional instruments of different materials. I mean, we have buffet, uh, they started their green line a long time ago. And so I thought if we make an English horn out of maple and we can make it work, um, they, they, it would be great. We could, we could be green too. And so at the time I started to work with, uh, with Tony Starkey and Sarah Thalen from Fox. Mm -hmm. We were working on their oboes. I was helping them sort of market and develop a, a professional line of instruments. And I mean, they did all of the work, but I, I worked a little bit with them on the logistics and I started playing their oboe and I really liked it. And I, you know, word of mouth, I, I, I spoke a lot about it as much as I could, teaching and giving master classes. And so they, they were so kind, they were so generous, they were so willing to work on this idea. I've never met anyone and people like this before. They said, let's do it, Pedro, let's try. So we tried all kinds of crazy things. They even tried to make an English horn out of carbon fiber. Cool. Because they have friends, Fort Wayne, it's a huge hub for military contractors and high-tech industries. So Tony knew a lot of people and they just, uh, you know, they spent a lot of resources on it. Always be grateful for that. And so the idea was to, I'm sorry, the idea was to make an English horn that was maple, but modified so it wouldn't have the usual problems that maple can bring to a small board like an English horn. And so we decided to try a plastic coating. In the beginning, the plastic wasn't on the best, of the best quality, but then, you know, they found a much better uh, type of polymer. The wood was beautiful and it was light and the intonation was great. Sarah did a great job uh, with the R&D. The development of it was fantastic. and. Um, you know, they would drive six hours just to bring me instruments sometimes. Uh, it was great. And the idea of having an English horn that's not going to feel like it's breaking your wrist while you're playing it is so attractive. Yes, yes. Uh, now, granted, 
it is not the it is not the sound that most people are used to you have to get into the sound and you have to learn how to play them and you have to make a different kind of read uh, they're not as open and and lively as a black uh, you know uh, wood instruments but they also have some characteristics that are desirable especially for me in the pit you can play softer you can play chamber music um but you do have to play them with different reeds and you just have to maybe have other instruments that you want to play when you want a different sound, which is, mm-hmm. it's okay. Uh, I do use my Laubin, Rosewood, my Rosewood Laubin. I also had a Cocobolo Laubin English horn, which is beautiful. But uh, that one I sold uh, to a very nice person, nice player. It's not for everyone. That's, that's what I would say. It's for someone who doesn't want to get tendonitis, like you said, <laughs> or a dislocation of the wrist. <laughs> And, uh, and someone who wants a, a sound that's not too offensive uh, and not too out there. Mm-hmm. And since it's Mabel, will it last forever, like a bassoon? I don't know. I'm still trying to work with them on some aspects that I think will help make them uh, more durable. But we haven't had a chance to talk in a while. Um, but I've, I've had the ones I have. I, I think I still have the prototype that I did the CD with. So cool. And, uh, you know, the album that I recorded, I did it basically with prototypes. The first two concertos were just a regular black, um, regular um, Fox that Sarah modified like the night before the recording heavily. (laughs) Basically worked on every tone hole (laughs) the night before the recording. Oh my God. You know, you can never have a perfect situation. You know, we had the recording date. We had the house. We had the musicians and the instruments were not ready. It's always like that, right? Sure. You know? <laughs> yeah, you watch that movie Ford versus Ferrari. You know, they go to Le Mans and they want to beat Ferrari and Ford, the, the cars are like leaking oil and the brakes don't work. It's always like that. <laughs> you just you just need the driver. I was just I try to be a good driver from that recording. That's all. Oh, I love that. I try my best. Uh so yeah, but um the great thing about maple, the other thing is that it doesn't crack. I have not been able to crack mm. my English horn or my oboe that I have. That may, after it sounds that, like you've tried. Oh, my wife says it's not an English horn until you crack it, Pedro. <laughs> <laughs> and it would take me just days or weeks with my other brands. Mm-hmm. Wow. Ex- except for the Lowing. Uh, the Lowing has always been the joint. Top joint is plastic coated. But also Loray. I have a Loray English horn that I'm trying here, a violet wood. And uh, I had a traumatic experience with a violet wood my early days in the Met. And uh, he, they know they know about this. Uh, so um, uh, now they make it with a, with a plastic top joint. I mean, with an insert. Mm-hmm. And I really, I really like the one I'm trying. It's great. It's fantastic. This might be a great segue because we always love to ask our guests about memorable performances both in an inspiring and meaningful way and in a hilarious, embarrassing way. So is there anything you would like to share with us about things that have happened to you in concerts? Oh my God, that would be pretty much almost every performance of the man. <laughs> but I can tell you um, early on, my first year or my first two years, I played uh, Don Carlo, which has a beautiful English horn solo and it's in F or meaning it's in C. 
uh, because for the English horn, the composers, they don't risk anything. They know they have to write for the English horn in C. As easy, <laughs> make it as easy as possible. Yeah. Don't give this, they're the violas of the woodwinds, you know, so don't give them anything too hard. And so this solo, it starts on a C. It's a whole thing is in F, meaning in C. So it starts on a C, goes to a high C, ends on a C. I got water. Well, my water broke in the sea. And so I played this. It was on the radio, too. It wasn't a Saturday broadcast, but it was one of those where they were doing it on a oh serious, God. you know, serious satellite, whatever. And so it was it was painful. The, actually, the most <laughs> the most painful part was that James Levine looked at his friend in the orchestra and they were both laughing, but they were not laughing with me. Oh. I was just sitting there, you know, basically hoping that the earth would swallow me. <laughs> Oh, that's horrendous. I try not to take myself too seriously anymore these days when those things like happen. Like, I, hey, here's a bonus for you, you know? Uh, but I, I can tell you other stories that are, you know, of a different character. For example, whenever I play the Valkyrie by Wagner, which is my favorite opera. Uh, and now it means more to me than ever because it's about the love of a father for his daughter and how in the end he has to punish her because his, uh, his sort of second wife gets mad at him because she misbehaved. And so he's forced to, to punish Brunilda and put her into the eternal fire. And so there are, there are a few scenes, one where he explains to her what she has done and, and then there's a one scene where he has to put her, see, I'm already tearing up. <laughs> he has to put her into the eternal fire. And it's the most beautiful area. And I can never play the last two pages without crying. Never. I even played it in, in uh, a couple of years ago, I was invited to play it in Dallas with the Dallas Symphony, with the wonderful Dallas Symphony musicians. And I got to play Valkyrie with them. I mean, it was like, I would have paid for that. It was, I love playing that piece, you know? And I had to cry in public. I mean, like at least in the in the pit, nobody sees me. But it's incredible. It's just so powerful. Some music is like that, right? You guys probably um, have had moments like this. And so playing while you weep is is quite the experience. Pedro, thank you so much for joining us today. What an awesome chat! This was so cool to learn more about you and what you do. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I always love talking to you guys. Uh, I, I hope that we get out of this situation. I hope that all the oboe players out there are safe and that we all find our paths back to where we were before this happened. Or maybe somewhere better. Yes. We hope you enjoyed the episode and uh, thank you for listening and don't forget to follow us on social media and go ahead and rate and review on iTunes. Uh, five stars only. Thanks. And uh, please. And thank you. <laughs> Who's on the next episode? 
<laughs> the next episode is principal bassoon of the Utah Symphony Orchestra, Lori Wyke. We can't wait to share that one with you. Um, go to our website and check out our merch. Buy stuff so that we can afford a CPA and Chris Wilson doesn't murder me in my sleep. And none of us go to jail. <laughs> Jackie, we got to end this nerd parade. Go make reads.